Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. history. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we're talking with Robert M. Browning Jr. about his study of the naval operations in the Gulf Coast region during the American Civil War, entitled Lincoln's Trident, the West Gulf Blockading Squadron during the Civil War. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Mark. It's it's a pleasure being here. It's a pleasure to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I, I basically had a an interest in military history since childhood. When other people were reading uh, Superman comics, I was reading war comics uh, for some reason. Uh, I continued that interest throughout my college uh, career and uh, you know, ended up going to the U- University of Alabama where I received my Ph.D. And, and uh, after that, the first job out of the gate, I was a park superintendent at the Battleship Texas. Uh, and I, only, I stayed there a couple of years and then got a job with the Coast Guard in 1989, and I worked for the Coast Guard for uh, over 26 years, and I served as its chief historian. Uh, but I you know, continuously uh, had an interest in, in, uh, in uh, military history and, and, and civil war history. I was thinking how, as I was reading this, that it represents the culmination of so much work that you've done in this, uh, because... It, uh, this is, in fact, the concluding volume of, of a trilogy. And I was wondering if you could explain how it was you came to this particular subject and how it became uh, a three-volume series about the larger issue of blockading the Confederacy during the Civil War. Well, let me let's back up a little bit because it's really not, this. Is, it may be my third volume, but there are going to be others because there were there were more than three squadrons. There was a, there was another coastal squadron, which was the East Gulf Blockading Squadron, and there was of course the Mississippi Squadron, and then you had a, a, a what is called often called the Flying Squadron or the Cruising Squadron, which is the the, the ships that chase the Confederate commerce raiders all over the planet. So there's. You know, while this is my third book in the series, it's not necessarily my last in the series because there are other other segments of the of the Union Navy to cover during the Civil War. Oh, really? How interesting! What about this volume in particular, though? What uh, led you to uh, define it the way that you did, and what led you to make this the next volume you were undertaking in the series? Well, I, it, you know, it's kind of hard to tell, hard to explain to to the uh, listeners maybe why you pick a certain uh, avenue or, or approach, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd already I'd already covered the East Gulf, the East Coast, and and uh, just decided to move into the West, uh, you know, the, the Gulf squadrons, and, and want to do the, the West Gulf first because I thought it was the most important, and of course it has. Uh, it includes, you know, who I consider probably or perhaps the United States uh, Navy's greatest naval hero, uh, David Glasgow Farragut. And, and as I got into the, to the research, I was just amazed at, at what all happened. And, you know, I, I went into the, to the, to the research from the very beginning, and I was, I, I was not going to make uh, Farragut a hero. In other words, I wanted to come to that conclusion myself. And after reading everything he did, it, there was just no, no question in my mind that, you know, he, he, he is or was who everybody says he was. One of the other things you do uh, from the start of the book is you describe how important the blockade was to the Civil War. And while I'm not an expert in Civil War history, it, uh, in so many of the books that I've read about the Civil War, the focus is so often on... Uh, land operations, or maybe upon, uh, when it comes to the sea, you have, of course, the famous Battle of the uh, Monitor in Virginia, 
and you have the uh, the, the squadrons and say the, the battles in Europe and so forth. And, and yet the blockading squadron, as you explained, is really a, a, a crucial com- aspect in terms of, of, of defining the outcome of the war. And I was wondering if you explain why it was so important and what role the uh, West Gulf blockading squadron in particular played in that. You know, the blockade is often missed during the war because there's, uh, most people focus on the Army campaigns, and if the Navy happens to be there, they might get some mention. But the blockade, of course, was, was the main reason that the Navy was uh, brought into the war, or, or you know, that was their first mission, was to, to, was to blockade the southern coast. And you know, what they do during the war is nothing short of amazing because they start off with, with 90 ships, uh, and only 42 of those are even in commission, and they have to blockade a long, shallow coast that's over 3,500 uh, miles long with 189 ports or, or places of, of entrance. And uh, the West Gulf Squadron had, you know, one of the largest coastlines to to uh, cover because they basically patrolled from Pensacola, Florida, all the way to Brownsville, Texas, and that's just an immensely long coast. Now, the one thing that did make it a little bit easier for them was that uh, they really only had to watch, uh, uh, you know, Mobile, Alabama, New Orleans at the beginning of the war, and Galveston, Texas. Those were the major ports along the, the uh, that stretch of, of coastline. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just very important what they did. Uh, they it, it basically, for the Union, it... it uh, does a lot of things uh, to the Confederacy. It it, uh, it basically means that they are only going to, uh, you know, once the blockade is implemented, that they're only going to be able to, the Confederacy is only going to have a fraction of their pre-war trade. Uh, the Confederacy is also not able to develop a full-scale war economy. And uh, they were not able to import a lot of the materials that they needed to sustain the war. Uh, they they imported a lot of arms and, and food and things like that, but some of the larger things like that they really needed, like locomotives, uh, steam engineering, uh, some of the, even some of the largest guns, they couldn't they just couldn't get them in in the quantities that they needed. So what it ends up the blockade ends up doing is it isolates the South and it actually causes inflation and other and other problems. And yet, as you describe, the challenges of running this were immense. You already mentioned the, the amount of coastline that they had to guard. And while it was concentrated on some ports, they none, there were nonetheless, you know, there's smaller traffic that they didn't ignore. But you also describe how from the start they had these challenges. It was a type of operation that the United States Navy had never really conducted, which was a large-scale blockade in what was essentially hostile waters, because you start by describing how the port facilities in the region were uh, immediately denied to the United States Navy. So not only were they having to maintain this blockade, they were effectively having to do it long distance. And and I was wondering if you could explain maybe some of the challenges that posed upon uh, the vessels and the men. Well, that's, and that's correct. And the West Gulf squadron being kind of on the, at the end of the blockade suffered uh, that the most, uh, you know, as you were mentioning, the, they really don't have bases to, to operate out of. And at the beginning of the war, they, they basically they have Fort Jefferson in the, is the only place in the Gulf that they have to operate of. And that's at the very end of the Florida Keys. Now, eventually, uh, Pensacola kind of comes into their hands in, in May 1862. Uh, but, but still, that's, that's a, that's at the very end of, of the, of the Gulf, West Gulf Squadron's uh, area of, of uh, operation. So what happens early in the war is, is again, this is in part because the United States Navy is, is still very small and they haven't acquired or built, you know, haven't acquired ships through the, the merchant fleets and they haven't built ships, but they have to put uh, sailing vessels off of the, the, the coast of, of uh, Louisiana and Alabama and Texas because they don't require coal. Uh, having to co- having to to go from from uh, Fort Jefferson and, and then later Pensacola out to the extremities extremities of the blockade was just not practical. And they sent a steamer fairly early to to Gal- off of Galveston, but she basically just sat there and, and didn't cruise around because she she had to re- save her coal. 
Uh, eventually, they resolved that to some degree by be, by taking coal colliers and and taking them out to the extremities of the blockade and, and refueling these ships. Uh, but it, it was it was still always a problem. And and also another another issue that that um, that they had to deal with is because it, it, these ships constantly kept their engines uh, turning over and and in operation. It it ended up requiring a lot of repairs. And so when you take take uh, vessels off station, you're you're weakening the blockade because of logistical issues. It really. Uh, becomes clear from the uh, first page of your book that the United States Navy goes into this war really having to scramble because obviously they weren't prepared for it. Nobody was expecting the type of crisis that really just uh, unfolded so quickly. So you have, you describe, and add to which the crisis itself created its own complications, not just the loss of ports, but as you mentioned, it was something like a, a quarter of the officer corps of the United States Navy resigned. And so you suddenly have all of these uh, uh, positions that are, are unoccupied. And while people you know, move up into them, it takes some time to sort out that leadership. It, just, it that becomes especially apparent, as you, as you explained, in the early months of the blockade, where there seems to be a, very, uh, a fairly rapid turnover in the commanders for it. You know, commanders that were uh, senior, that were there by virtue of, of, of peacetime promotions, suddenly find themselves in situations for which they, they don't, uh, really seem prepared. Yeah, and the Navy had the problem of they they basically based their promotions on seniority, uh, which is not you know seniority is a small portion of of, uh, of that today, but it's mainly on your abilities. And uh, so, what you have in the United States Navy is at the very top, you have a lot of very elderly officers because also advancement during the antebellum uh, days and the antebellum Navy was very slow. So the, the the leaders, the first leaders of the squadron, are kind of they're very they're ancient men for their for their day, uh, and they've been in the navy for for many decades. Yeah. Uh, the, the one and, thing that sorry, the one thing that stood out for me was how how often you kept referring to how they began their service or uh, had combat experience dating back to the War of eighteen twelve. <laughs> that, that's correct. It's, it's it, like I said, it's amazing. Uh, so, you know the, how far these guys, these men date uh, could date their careers back, and yet helping their uh, uh, offsetting these challenges were the challenges that the Confederates themselves faced. Because while the United States Navy was scrambling to uh, develop this blockade and to man it, the Confederacy was having to build a navy. In some respects, from scratch. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain the, the the challenges that the Confederates were able to pose to this blockade from the start, both in terms of their navy and in terms of their uh, merchant forces. Well, the, as you kind of alluded to, the Confederacy started out with really no navy whatsoever, with with the exception of the few vessels that they could capture. Uh, in the ports, I mean, there mainly there were a number of uh, there were some merchant vessels that they that they got their hands on, but also uh, lighthouse tenders and and uh, and things like that, so a few revenue cutters. So they they really weren't very good naval vessels, and the Confederacy, of course, had to build and acquire a navy as well. Uh, but the other thing, so so really, they were the Confederates were not able to to. Uh, Challenged the Union Navy at sea. Uh, so what they tried to do, of course, is to protect the ports, and 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 they began the war with with uh, very few guns or not enough guns. They luckily they had captured the Norfolk Navy Yard, which had had allowed them to to uh, fortify a lot of the places along the southern coast. Uh, but the you know there there are a number of other things that happen. The Confederacy really has no, no, uh, you know, no, uh, the policies are, are sometimes not, not as good uh, as they could be, particularly if, and we can talk about this later, is the blockade running policy. There, there is no importation policy for the Confederacy, which, which really impacts uh, what happens. But one of the things that the, the Confederates did do early on, and it kind of aggravated the the enforcement of the blockade, was that they they uh, allowed privateers to go out at sea, and the, the, all these vessels cruising out of the Confederate ports were uh, 
uh, were troublesome to the blockade, uh, the Union blockaders. Now, eventually, they they are able to to uh, uh, control these these uh, these vessels, and and pretty and this pretty much stopped, you know, with only a few months into the war. But the Confederacy then pushes us this attempt farther by by having uh, cruisers, uh, or, you know, commerce raiders. And this does affect the blockade uh, because there's a there's a huge number of, of uh, Union ships that are that are at any one time detached to, to try to find these these vessels. So those are the, the few things that the that the Confederacy was able to do. And eventually they built ironclads, which also helped protect the ports. They also developed a very challenging way of resisting the effort to uh, seize the ships. The United States Navy is operating under uh, admiralty laws and, 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 and rules that have gone back for some time. And as you explain, uh, as you point out throughout the book, one of the ways that the Confederates would try to avoid having their ships seized was by transferring ownership uh, to uh, European powers, uh, to European parties. And, and, and this really complicates the ostensibly straightforward effort of simply seize, seeing a ship and seizing it. Because then there was this question of, whether or not there was this political uh, complication. And, and as you explained sometimes, it would, you know, there's always this uh, potential for a diplomatic crisis that would far outstrip uh, any sort of, of, of benefit from seizing that vessel. Okay, well, at, at the beginning of the war, the, the, the southern merchants tried to uh, evade blockade, uh, the blockade by... Tr- Transferring their their ships to either British registry or sometimes Mexican registry or, or even other countries, uh, and while that may may have gotten them uh, mostly out of the country, it eventually wouldn't really help them too much because what happens is the Union Navy during the war kind of expands the definition of of, of blockading practice beyond what the British had even done. So what could be called contraband was was much wider now, uh, but it, but it even went farther than that. And and, and basically they they uh, and and this was judged by the American courts was that that contraband cargoes could be seized at any time during the journey. Uh, beforehand, uh, you know, this was not the case. So because what was happening during the Civil War. They were bringing these cargoes in very large ships to Havana and Bermuda and Nassau, and then they were putting them on the speedy blockade runners from those points to the south. Well, what they, what the American courts actually eventually established was that any contraband goods, no matter where they are on the ocean, can be seized at any point in the trip. Uh, and this would, you know, and when they could prove it, like it was, they were, uh, say, say buttons for the Confederacy. They knew that that was a Confederate contraband. Uh, you couldn't say that they were just buttons uh, meant for anybody. So it, it had to be proved in, in, in the court, but this was one of the, it was kind of an expansion of blockading practice. Uh, so, you know, while the, while the Confederates did get beyond it initially, the federal, U.S. federal courts kind of uh, ended up uh, winning in, in a lot of these things. But it, and there were a lot of gray areas, and, and there were a lot of court cases, and a lot of these vessels, a lot of the, the, uh, the court cases were dismissed in favor of the of the ship's owners, but but in but in the long run, the the practice was expanded. And of course, for the British, this was a good idea because they had the largest navy in the world. You describe a lot of judgment calls being made by captains, and you also uh, reference the fact that for all, some of these uh, vessels, for the crews, if they uh, if they seize a ship with a particular remunerative cargo they could become quite wealthy. You, you mentioned one ship where I, the proceeds were equivalent to, I think it was a year and a half of their salaries. Yeah, that's the case. The, uh, the Navy had, a pri- had prize laws, and, and, and basically the, the, the amounts went to the crew in proportion to their pay. And even the admirals would get, would get money on this. And, and, uh, uh, like, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll go beyond the... The West Gulf blockading squadron, and go to the east, the uh, North Atlantic, where they captured a lot more ships. But the but the admiral that was in charge of that squadron for for more for, for longer than anybody else ended up with a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars 
during the war in prize money. That was his cut of that. And, and you know, that's probably a thousand times his, or, or, or you know, a hundred times his, his, uh, his annual pay there. So it, it's just a tremendous amount. So I wonder if we could shift now to talking about the establishment of the blockade in its early months. Uh, how did the U.S. Navy go about it, and, and how did they eventually uh, deal with the issues they were having, in particular with command? Well, the, the, the Navy eventually, as I mentioned earlier, they, they, they initially in the Gulf Coast and in, in a lot of places along the coast, they put, in, put up sailing vessels. But one of the things that the Navy's doing at this time is they're, they're purchasing every steamer from the, the merchant fleet that they can in the United States merchant fleet. Uh, to put those out there, there, and of course these vessels are, were never meant to be vessels of war. They were meant to carry cargo, so they don't. They're not. They're not built to carry heavy cannon and extra crew and, and all these other things. And, and in, in some cases, the machinery on these vessels was was actually above decks and in, in in full view of the enemy. But you know they still get them on station, and uh, you know they're patrolling as well. And eventually, the Navy is building classes of vessels that that. Do make good blockading uh, ships, and they get those those on station, as well as some of the fastest blockade runners. So some of the fastest blockaders, the Union blockaders, were ex-blockade runners that had been captured and and turned into to blockading vessels. Now what happens is is is, is in you know the command of course is more more uh, uh, difficult because when you have when they do have these more ships, they're able to push them out farther to sea before in the early part of the war they just sat off the coast and uh you know pretty much in full view but as they got more vessels they started kind of patrolling the 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 shipping lanes and, and but there's another another thing that that a lot of people don't realize and and that they don't have a naval background is you know when they look at a map they just see there's land and there's water but but what happens is you you have channels off of the ports and it, is, it basically it serves as the same way as highways. Uh, in other words, the ships can only go in these in these highways because of their because of the draft of their vessels. Now, what one of the things that the Confederates did was that they built very shallow draft blockade runners, so, so they could go almost anywhere. Whereas the Union vessels were were they it was dictated that they had to remain in these channels or, or roadways, or whatever, so they didn't run aground. Uh, but the but basically getting back to command, it you know it, it becomes uh, it, it's kind of um, it's problematic at times because what happens is you, if you have a a more senior officer that's coming along the coast and uh, you know he uh, if if he stays a, a couple of days at, at, off of one port he basically is is in is in command uh, just for for virtue of being the the senior officer and they do and it does complicate things. For the for the Union Navy, but you know, I, I think they overcame all that, and 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 they did a credible job of of stopping Confederate trade. I got the impression, though, that what drove the appointment of of, of uh, David Farragut to command the uh, squadron was the sense that his immediate predecessors were not being as aggressive as people in Washington were expecting them to be. Well, yeah, I mean, of all the the Naval officer during the war, Farragut was probably about the most aggressive uh, of them all, and 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 Farragut was one of these men that he led from the front. In other words, wherever the most pressing part of his command uh, lay, in other words, the most whether it's attacking forts or the blockade or you know getting ready for uh, the capture of Mobile uh, or in operations up the river, Farragut was always there. He was at the, you know, he was leading from the front, uh, and, and that made, a, I think, it made a big difference. Uh, and, and and there were, you know, I, I do think that Farragut had some of the best, uh, senior, you know, some of the best officers in the service. Now he had some that 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 disappointed him, uh, and uh, and and he was quick to to let them know that, but. Uh, Overall, he, he had some of the best. I mean, Henry Bell, who was uh, kind of a, a almost a contemporary of Farragut, that was also a Southerner that stayed with the Navy. 
uh, Farragut uh, loved that man. I mean, he just they, they were very they were just very good friends, and Bell served him well throughout the whole war as a as a commanding officer and and senior officer off of uh, Mobile, and I think he, he later went to Galveston and, and served in a number of capacities. But Henry Bell was was uh, one of his best friends and a very competent and capable officer. One of the things you do is while you give Farragut. Farragut, every bit of the credit that he's due. You also described, though, that he had certain limitations. Uh, I, one of the best uh, analyses that you do in the book, uh, I thought, was when you described that he could only do one thing at a time. He did that very well, but he could only really focus upon one task ahead of him. And you also described how oftentimes uh, after a battle, he was more cons- people criticized him for being more concerned about the condition of his ships than the condition of his men. You, you reference uh, this was in the uh, description of the Battle of Mobile Bay about how uh, somebody accused him of basically stepping over bodies to to check on the condition of the vessel itself. Well, that's true, and I, and you know I don't I, I don't know how you can describe that uh, you know other than maybe he he had to detach himself to some degree uh, from from the the carnage that was uh, that was there. Uh, otherwise, maybe he couldn't he couldn't function. Uh, as well. And you explain how he then, when he assumes command, he begins to then focus upon uh, a succession of tasks. And the first one is uh, the one for uh, which he is arguably most famous, which is the capture of New Orleans. I was wondering if you could uh, go into, uh, explain a bit how this fit into the broader mission of the um, of the West Gulf Blockade Squadron, and what Farragut did to uh, affect this capture. Well, Farragut uh, was, you know, he was given basically just just a, we'll take a, just a half a step back. He was given three three goals uh, that, that more or less co- that coincided after he captured New Orleans. Uh, one was clearing the Mississippi. One was capturing Mobile, Alabama, and the other was the blockade. And of course, the the first two, clearing the Mississippi and capturing Mobile, required army support. So the the Navy almost set him up for failure. But he went he went to the West uh, Gulf Squadron uh, as the commander with the initial uh, mission of capturing New Orleans. Now, New Orleans at the time was was the South's most important port. It was one of the largest cities. It had manufacturing. It, it was kind of a uh, you know, it's just a very important city for the Confederacy. Uh, now it was it was pretty far up the Mississippi River, but down at the very uh, base of it, at the at the mouth of the river, there were actually five mouths, and it, which looked like a, like five fingers sticking out into the Gulf of Mexico. So, what it was requiring is that the Union uh, forces had they had to blockade all five five of those entrances because they. Now, you know, and some were better than others, particularly for deep-drafted vessels, but they still had to watch them all, which kind of was problematic for the Union Navy. But the, uh, in part of the, the overall plan for the, for the Union Navy was to, to cut, uh, cut the South in half by, by capturing points along the Mississippi, and they sent a force from north down, from the north, you know, going south down the Mississippi, and Farragut was to go, uh, from the south end northward, and they were to, were to meet. And of course, to do this, you have to capture New Orleans. Uh, well, they pretty they got into the river fairly easily, but um, they ran a, a, up against up against two very heavily fortified uh, fortifications that were below New Orleans. And to, to capture the city, they of course they would have to to uh, to uh, capture uh, these forts or drive the Confederate defenders from them. And one of the one of Farragut's uh, subordinate officers was David Dixon Porter, who was uh, was uh, Farragut's uh, uh, foster brother, and he commanded a, a flotilla of mortar uh, uh, schooners that could fire very large shells uh, at a high arc and, and come down on on a on the uh, on, on the targets. Well, this was their initial solution to basically defeating these forts was to have these mortar schooners bombard the forts into submission. 
And after many days of heavy, heavy bombardment, I mean, it's, at times there were two or three shells in the air at one time, they found that it really wasn't knocking out the firepower of these forts. And so Farragut had to uh, decide that he had to bypass them. And, of course, initially uh, they had to, to break through a, a boom of obstructions, which were, were old vessels that they kind of chained together across the river to keep the, the Union vessels from, from a uh, ascending the river, but they broke that, and Farragut, with with his his command, they they um, go past the the forts, and you know suffer you know some some casualties, and and they basically either drive all the Confederate vessels away, capture them, or sink them. Uh, but he's now above the forts, and the army contingent under General Benjamin Butler is there to to uh, uh, eventually uh, take the forts or, or, you know, basically there to capture them, which, which they do. Uh, Farragut, though, goes on up to the city of New Orleans and demands its surrender, and for several days is, is negotiating the surrender of New Orleans with the mayor and, 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 and other people uh, until Butler can get there, and he, finally, and he does finally get there, and, and, and New Orleans surrenders. The way you write about it, it's almost a comic opera where nobody's willing to claim to have the authority to surrender the city. But there's also this element of danger because the United States is trying to assert this authority. They're, they're trying to plant the flag, literally. And yet they're encountering a lot of hostility from the, uh, the town. And as you described, they don't have really the forces to pacify the town. They need Butler's men to come up and do that. So you have this period where these vessels are trying to hold the city. You describe it. It got a little hairy at points, but it was not without its element of absurdity to it. Yeah, it was because Farragut was demanding the surrender and the mayor was basically saying, well, I, I don't have any forces here to surrender it. So it's, it's yours, but you know, I, I, you know, I have no authority. And, uh, and again, until Butler and his troops get there, it, it, there's this, there's a back and forth about, how the you know the flags need the U.S. flags need to fly over the mint and, and the and the uh, mayor's office and other places in, in in the city and and the mayor's again as you say is backing away saying well I don't have authority and I can't force my I can't force my people to do this so it, it, you're right it it, it 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 but it is kind of funny but it's also interesting that again the, if you think about it these were Farragut subordinates uh, that were handling all this. In Farragut's absence, and they did a magnificent job, from, you know, so that the thing did not did not boil over. Uh, I, I called, I, I did a paper uh, at a conference one time, and I said they they casted a shorter shadow than 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 Farragut, but they were, you know, they, they were very important to his successes. Once the city of New Orleans is captured, Farragut then goes on to uh, continue the process of taking the Mississippi. And you describe these operations as ones in which, at times, the Navy is virtually the only presence uh, in uh, this projection of Union power north, that the Army is, uh, is, is not necessarily keeping up with them. So you describe a lot of instances where they, these vessels are single-handedly taking on Confederate fortifications. And you also describe this almost guerrilla warfare where the Confederates would occasionally not just snipe at the Union vessels, but bring up flying artillery and bombard them as they're uh, traveling up and down the river. Yeah, and it, well, as, as soon as Farragut is able to consolidate his ships and, you know, uh, and, and get ready, he's, he's up at Vicksburg by the, basically by the middle of May 1862, but there is no army there. So he, he finds that he you know there's nothing he can do, and so he goes he goes back down and he returns uh, in June with a small army force. And at this point, there's really nothing at Vicksburg to stop them from capturing it, but but they fail to do that. Uh, and as you mentioned all along, they do have flying uh, artillery batteries. Uh, and what made the what made those that uh, those small guns so effective? That actually served as as uh, defensive positions for these guns. They could fire. They could almost fire at the at the Union ships w- without uh, worry of being uh, being fired back upon because there was you know because the the levees themselves protected the gun crews. Um, but uh, you know, and Farragut basically finds 
in, in the summer of 1862 with uh, with the water now falling to such a degree that he he's afraid his ships are going to be trapped up in wintertime, and he has to leave. He has to go back down to New Orleans. Uh, so this was a, a point in the war where had the leadership provided enough troops, they could have captured the whole Mississippi uh, without all the issues later on, but they just they, they didn't have the 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 uh, uh, any kind of continuing strategy once once Farragut got to New Orleans. That issue of insufficient manpower also plays a role in the uh, failure of the Union to hold Galveston, which was uh, the the largest at that time the largest port in Texas. I was wondering if you could explain a bit how the operations off Galveston differed from those in uh, around New Orleans, and also how the Confederacy was exploiting uh, the Mexican town of Matamoros, uh, as you described very effectively, to avoid a lot of the uh, efforts of the Union Navy to try to seize, their, to seize uh, Confederate uh, uh, shipments. Well, Galveston was basically the, the major port in Texas. Uh, and it, it, while you know, it, when you say major ports, you you have a, probably a lot of people have visions of, of you know this uh, being something big. But Galveston was very small at the time, and uh, the, the Galveston had problems uh, as a port. One thing, it had very shallow water there. It, while it's, it's a major port, it's still very shallow, so the, the, the Union vessels had a hard time maneuvering. To uh, to attack or to even blockade, the but the, the really the major uh, drawback the connecting railroads back to the east. So anything that lands there, it, it can go to railroads like to Houston and, and to other parts in the state. But then it has to be carried from wagons from there. So it kind of diminishes its its real value. Uh, in January 1863, the Navy had basically captured the town, but the army was slow in getting its troops there, and, and uh, the Confederates recapture uh, Galveston. And basically, Galveston remains in Confederate hands until until June of 1865. So, it was, again, it was a mistake of, of just not, one, being late, and then, two, not providing enough troops uh, to hold this, this position. And it, and it was very costly to the Navy during the war because they had to keep ships there to blockade it. Now, Madam Morris is a, is a whole other... Uh, issue. Uh, Matamoros is on the Rio Grande River, on the Mexican side of the river. And as most, some people might not know that, of course, the Rio Grande is it, is the separating border between the United States and Mexico. But from the mouth of the river, it, which it, uh, that that miles out to sea from from the land. Now, so what was what was able the Confederates were able to do was they were able to ship stuff to Brownsville or whatever, have it cross the river and be shipped out legally through Matamoros because that was a was a uh, a neutral port. And trade grew exponentially here during the war. Uh, just to uh, just to put it in perspective, in in uh, two years, uh, I, there's there was some some uh, uh, statistics. There was in in 1861 there was only one ship from New York that had cleared to go to Matamoros. In 1862 there were 20 from New York, and in 1863 there were 72 from New York that that cleared to go to Matamoros. Now of course they're carrying out cotton from from Matamoros, and they're carrying in uh, often supplies that could help the Confederacy. So it's really a kind of a you have uh, northern merchants helping the Confederacy and, and making a lot of money. And as you described, you also have the diplomatic complications of how there's a multinational operation in Mexico in 1863 regarding national debt and how that morphs into a French occupation uh, and and, and empire-building effort in Mexico, which means that they're not just dealing with the Mexican government. They're dealing with all these European governments who have a very uh, forward presence and who certainly are not going to brook violations of the sovereignty of their ships. Well, that's correct. They, you have the you have French presence there as well as the British presence there, and uh, and of course you have a lot of British merchants there. You know, also bringing supplies. And what happens is is there are some seizures of British ships down there. Uh, some were legal. A lot of them were were later deemed illegal. And and again, it's, it's part of it was part of the inaccuracies of, of exactly, well, where is the line? 
that comes out to sea. And, and you know, the American companies were very aggressive and would see them, and the courts would later find, well, no, they had just, you know, a, a storm had caused them to drift over the line or, or whatever. So, but, you know, it, it caused a lot of hard feelings between particularly the British and the Americans over, over some of the activity that was going on at, right off of Matamoros. As you described, once Vicksburg is captured in uh, July of 1863, Farragut's able to shift his attention to the other major port in his, uh, in his area, which is uh, Mobile. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the operations around Mobile and the uh, effort that he undertakes to uh, both uh, to, to, to capture the port. Well, Mobile at this time is is really is the Gulf's most important port. Uh, it's a, it's a deep water port. It's uh, uh, Mo- Mobile, Alabama itself sits you know way up in the bay, and so it's out of out of reach of of uh, direct naval assault. And uh, and it had been one of the original targets of, of, for Farragut when he first took command of the squadron. And he starts off, you know. You know, bombarding. There's a fort on on the west side of the of the bay that he bombards. I, I, I think he uh, said it was just for more or less for entertainment. I'm not sure the exact words, but it was along those lines. And of course, the 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 Confederates know that this is going to happen, and they've built up the defenses all around Mobile. They have a fort uh, at the mouth of the river. They have they have torpedoes or mines, as most people would would recognize most of the day, and they have one of the one of the the most powerful ironclads, the the CSS Tennessee, uh, also protecting the bay with a few other gunboats. Well. Uh, Farragut basically has to wait for months, waiting for for army, uh, for the army to to make this a, uh, a uh, priority. Because again, it's it's like in other places that he could he could pass by the forts, but but it but there's no reason to if you don't have have the troops to hold it. Eventually, he gets a commitment from the army, and it's basically because of the it might be a, a valuable. Uh, place to capture because it might it might assist with the Atlanta campaign. <clears throat> uh, but about the time he gets the commitment of this, they decide to go on a, another campaign up the Red River, and that delays this whole process for another couple of months. Well, eventually he gets part of you know he gets part of the troops that he that uh, uh, that he thought he was going to get. But the the Union commander who who's very good basically said I can I can take. You know this half, this this other side. If you can pass the fort, so once once you pass them, then we can supply you uh, from the other from the western side. So uh, basically, Farragut's preparing for this. He's actually sits in his cabin on on the Hartford, which was his flagship, and he has blocks of wood shaped like ships that he pushes out along the floor, trying to figure out the best way to to attack Mobile and get his vessels past the fort at the at the throat of the harbor and um, he eventually decides to to pair his ships up and what he has is a powerful ship on one side and one of the smaller gunboats on uh, on the other side and the reason he does this is in case the the larger ship gets uh, damaged so that it can't the, it, the engines can't run the, the smaller ship can carry it on into the harbor uh, but he basically lashes all of his, you know, the ships that he's going to take into the attack together, and they on August the fifth, uh, eighteen sixty-four, they they start heading to the harbor. Now they also have four ironclads or four monitors that uh, that are attached to this to this uh, attacking column. Uh, of course, he had to, he basically had to beg for to get these, uh, and he and he finally did. Um, the uh, the monitors, though, as the, they're all going in kind of together, the monitors are, are to precede all the wooden vessels. And the monitors, though, were slower than, than Farragut anticipated, and they basically what happens is that they cross right in front of the, the paired-up wooden ships right before they get in the harbor. And the lead monitor, which was the Tecumseh, decides to cut across uh, 
the the torpedo field to go after the the, the Tennessee, and this was a mistake because the ten, the Tecumseh ran on one of the torpedoes and sinks. Well, this uh, kind of throws the whole Farragut's whole battle plan into confusion because this monitor sank right in front of the wooden ships, <clears throat> and they really can't pass over top of it because this thing is so huge. It, it rising off the bottom, it could it could rip the rip the bottom out of any of the wooden ships. So the so the lead uh, ship, which was not Farragut, it was the Brooklyn with uh, Captain Alden uh, commanding. He starts backing. Well, that just makes it makes the whole battle plan even worse because now you have you, you have a uh, backing ships. They're starting to bunch near up near the harbor. Uh, the 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 current is is taking them into the harbor because Farragut wanted wanted this to, to be the case in case they were disabled. The, the current would help them get in. And <clears throat> as Farragut's ship uh, comes up to to Alden's, he decides he has to take the lead is you know he 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 makes a split second decision and and he takes the lead and goes on into the harbor then they go over the torpedo field and they can hear the torpedo off underneath the ships but they just didn't blow up the, the fuses went off but the, but the explosions didn't and of course <clears throat> there as there, as all the ships follow Farragut in they uh have to contend with the with the CSS Tennessee that's right there Trying to you know damage severely each one or each pair as they, as they pass by. Uh, eventually, they all get in. Uh, some with with, with some very uh, bad uh, casualties, uh, but they do, but they all the pairs do get in, and they eventually have a, a battle within the bay uh, between all the Farragut ships who which now have become unpaired. They they've cut the lashings and they're all independent ships now against the Tennessee. And they're they're pounding the, the monitors are pounding its armor, and the other vessels are trying to ram it, and it's kind of just this giant melee. Uh, and one one of the the uh, people that saw it said it was like a a wild pack of dogs after a bear. Uh, but eventually they they caused the Tennessee enough damage on the Tennessee that 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 the uh, that the, the ship has to surrender, and it pretty much ends the Battle of Mobile Bay. And they eventually capture Mobile itself, but not till the very end of the war, though the battle itself seems to have effectively ended its usefulness to the Confederacy as a port for uh, for uh, blockade running. It does, yeah. It, uh, once they get in the bay and, and can stay in the bay, that that ends Mobile's, uh, basically, its, its reason for being almost. And, cause, and Mobile doesn't fall until April 1865, again, because of the the uh, defensive works around this uh, the, that they had built up around the city it just made it very difficult and the sh- and also the shallow water that the that the Union vessels had to operate in. Overall, what would you say is the legacy of the blockade in terms of the Civil War? Does it uh, does it? We've already talked a bit about how you know how important it was to uh, ending Confederate trade. Do you think that in the end it really succeeded in, in, in shortening the war or defining its shape in a way that it might not have been had it not existed? And, and, and what did it and, and did it uh, do anything with regard to the U.S. Navy in terms of defining its history as, as, as a fighting force? Well, I definitely think it shortened the war. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the Confederacy was, was basically limited to a fraction of its pre-war trade. Uh, they were never able to develop any kind of a full-scale war economy, and, and it forced the Confederacy in the in the things that imported it forced the the Confederate leadership to make a decision. Uh, it isolated the South and it and it caused inflation. So it, along those lines, it was it was tremendous. I mean, had the had the Confederacy been able to to import marine engines and uh, all the cannon it needed, locomotives, you know, they were short of locomotives, railroad iron, and, and the things that could have helped to uh, have su- helped it sustain its war, uh, you know, the war machine, the machinery of the war, there's it, 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 no telling how long the war could have lasted. But that alone, I think, was, you know, shortened the war by a long shot. Uh, the, uh, as far as what it does to the Navy, uh, you know, I, I think... 
the Navy, which was a, as I had mentioned earlier, was 90 ships and 42 in commission, ended up the war with over 600 ships on the rolls. Uh, that definitely created a situation where the European nations were now taking a look at, at the United States, and, and you know the, they have ocean-going ironclads like the new Ironsides, and and and, and the monitors were. Uh, you know, were, were very fascinating for the, the Europeans, although they, they were really only good for more or less for harbor defense that had never been able to, to you know, to, to really go to Europe and attack fortifications over there efficiently, but they were very good for harbor defense. So I think it, you know, the, the, it was probably the, the, the point where the United States Navy ha- had an awakening. Of course, shortly after the war, they kind of have a retrenchment, and and they and it's not until the 1880s until they really again start uh, uh, trying to build a a, a, a navy on a, for an international, uh, you know, on an international scale. But but I think again during this period, uh, it, it definitely had the the European nations looking at at it. It really does demonstrate the ability of the Navy to adapt to a type of situation that had really never been prepared for and really uh, distinguished itself in, in its ability to do that. It was, it was one of the things that I kept reflecting upon as I was reading chapter after chapter was that how they were really having to do a lot of this stuff uh, on the fly and, and, and without any sort of uh, real experience or, or tradition to fall back upon. They, they had not tried to blockade Mexico, for example, during the Mexican-American War. They had not had any sort of, you know, opportunity to do anything even remotely like this during the War of 1812. And yet, yeah, during the well, war, they, they really become a modern industrial navy that's able to conduct a, a very large-scale operation like this. Yeah, well, actually, they did blockade the, the Mexico, Mexico a little bit, but it wasn't anywhere near the, 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 the effort that it was during the Civil War. And then, and then the, you might add to that is just the brown water operations, the, the operations up the rivers and things were just basically, if you think about it, the, the Union Navy defined the reach of the Union armies during the war. Uh, there's hardly any place where you have Union armies that, that aren't supported by the Union Navy somewhere. So I, I think that you know that's a, just just something else that can be you know the the listeners can think about is that they that the navy define the, the reach of the union army. That's a good way of putting it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I am working on the uh, the, the squadron I had mentioned earlier, the cruising squadron, or the uh, the 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 ones the the vessels the union warships that chased the Confederate commerce raiders all over the globe, like the CSS Alabama and the Shenandoah, and all the, the things that go on behind the scenes, uh, 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 you know, trying to track these ships down and, 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 uh, and end their, their forays into in the, the, the uh, United States merchant fleet. Well, it sounds like you're developing not just a history of, of the blockade, but really a general multi-volume history of the uh, U.S. Navy in the Civil War. It sounds like uh, quite a formidable undertaking. Well, it's, that's kind of my goal. Is I, you know, maybe if I live long enough, <laughs> I'll I'll get through the whole, the, you know, all the squadrons. But that's my that's my eventual goal. Well, I hope you do achieve that goal. And uh, Bob, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. All right, thanks. Happy to do it.